Welcome back to Bookaholics, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's podcast series dedicated to books. In this series, we introduce you to some recent and relevant books, our own books, and obviously some classic books that we just can't stop talking and teaching about. My name is Christoph van Houten, and in this episode of Bookaholics, I am joined by Frank Furedi to talk about his latest, or should I say, his forthcoming book, the year of publication is in fact 2021, entitled Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries, published by Routledge. Hello, Frank, and welcome back. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you, Christoph. So as Heidegger once said, and I'm paraphrasing here, every book has only one idea. Now, considering you wrote this book, who better than you to tell us what this idea is? So what is this book all about? And above all, what is it that you investigated and what you intended to achieve by writing it? Well, um, the, the main argument in the book and something that I've kind of discovered step by step is that uh, contemporary Western society has become estranged uh, and hostile even to the idea of borders and symbolic boundaries. And I became interested in this because uh, I noticed that the movements who are against the borders between nations were also sometimes hostile to the symbolic boundaries that exist in everyday life. And by symbolic boundaries, I mean the boundary between children and adults, between humans and animals, between men and women, between the private and public sphere, and there are many others, uh, which they regard as artificial and somehow discriminatory, something that should be eradicated. And I became interested as to why it was, you know, what was driving this uh, alienation from boundaries and this hostility because i felt that uh, there was something common that was driving this it wasn't you know it although it appeared to be very discreet that you know the boundary between children and adults and the problems associated with it are very different to the boundaries between nation i felt that nevertheless there was something that bound together this anti-boundary zeitgeist and I came to the conclusion that, that what that really was, was ultimately the, uh, the failure of judgment, and in particular, uh, the way in which in Western society, moral judgment has acquired an entirely negative connotation. We live in a, a non-judgmental world. And when judgment goes, then so does discrimination between things, so does the making of distinctions, uh, so does the, you know, the, the kind of capacity to kind of um, distinguish between right and wrong or distinguish between different elements of our world. And, and that's really what the book is about. And it uses different examples, different themes to show how, how the, uh, um, the loss of a sense of boundary does have a important implications for our, our moral life overall. Yeah, uh, thanks for this. Now, I would like to dig a bit deeper into some topics of the book to try and understand, to say again in a Heideggerian way, your unthought. That is that which you couldn't think of, but that if we were able to discover that would help us greatly to understand what you wrote. And to do this, I would like to start by playing a little bit the advocate of the devil. So you say that 
people need to relearn the importance of borders and boundaries. And and I know, I think I understand where you come from. There are indeed all these movements and initiatives to undermine borders and boundaries, be they real borders or moral borders or boundaries. But at the same time, we have had in the past years more than a number of movements that have stressed the importance of borders and boundaries as well. We've had, for example, Brexit in the country you live in, and then all the neo-sovereign movements on mainland Europe. And Trump, on the other hand, in 2016, got elected on a very similar platform as well. So are you certain that there is a lack of awareness of this necessity of boundaries? Or maybe do you fear, like I would, uh, that the invoked boundaries and boundaries and, and borders by those who still call for them are actually not that much interested in the qualities of these bound, bound borders and boundaries, but mainly or even solely in the ideological or electoral benefits of boundaries and borders. Well, I think there's a double process going on, which is that on the one hand, uh, the kind of movements you talk about are relatively marginal to contemporary culture, the, what you call the neo-sovereignist movement, are culturally marginalized and, and they're their calls for boundaries is relatively dis easily dismissed by, particularly by the cultural elites and the mainstream. Mm. Um, but secondly, I think that, and I argue this in the book, you cannot do without boundaries and borders. It's impossible to live one's life, you know, uh, unless you've got a door in front of your house or that uh, there are kind of clear lines. And what I do is I make the point is that uh, what has happened is that uh, at a time when the, the moral foundations for boundaries have been called into question, what you have is a, 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 an attempt to, to create boundaries, but without uh, boundaries with any kind of normative uh, sort of basis to it. Mm. But to give you an example, uh, the same people that criticize Trump for wanting to reinforce the boundary between Mexico and America, and say that it's really wrong and inhuman, to have any kind of boundaries, are also the same people that want to create sp safe spaces mm. around themselves. And you've got this massive safe space movement, which is a way of quarantining themselves from criticism. Mm. So the same people that are critical of national sovereignty and uh, are extremely critical about you know, the uh, fact that some people want to make a distinction between citizens and non-citizens, are also the same people that promote uh, sort of um, cultural policing. And you got this phenomenon of cultural appropriation where people are taken to task and criticized for daring to uh, sort of uh, even cook uh, sort of food products of another culture. Mm. Or uh, you have actors who are not Jewish being criticized for playing Jewish parts in a cinema mm. or uh, or, 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 a, or a white actor who's playing, who's, who's entirely healthy, playing a disabled person. How could, you, how could you do that? The boundaries need to be drawn in a way that is actually very infantile and childish uh, and aren't based upon an attempt to create a kind of, a test to kind of find some kind of moral, normal foundation. So I think in that sense, the, what you have is, yes, you have the uh, desperate attempt to create boundaries very very often very individualistic ones mm -hmm. uh, but in a way that in no way represents the uh, uh the, the moral equivalent of what has been uh either, either criticized or crushed or 
or lost. And and maybe uh, I I would add here that maybe on both sides of of the political spectrum these new boundaries or these being are trying to be erected both lack these this moral foundation also the the trump wall lacks the moral foundation to have anything to do or to be anything uh, well propositive and then in the moral sense i think yeah well i think you're right i think that the trumpian wall is very much a performative mm. you know sort of uh function uh, and it's really interesting that uh you know if Trump was genuinely interested in the question of boundaries, he would have been much more reflective and thoughtful and active in promoting the idea of national sovereignty, the sovereignty of the people, many of the important elements, or even of citizenship, you know, mm. you know sort of giving greater content and meaning to the uh, status of a, of a citizen. But that, that hasn't happened yet. Yet mm. really this performance of wall building pretty much in the same way as you have the building of gated communities by rich people yeah of america or pretty much in the same way that if you go online you have all these websites that help you to protect your body space mm. so what they call your personal space so your personal space is sacred and invaluable inviolable and, and you know people are very interested in protecting themselves against this invisible enemy that that might encroach on it so you have that kind of on all sides, uh, a certain similar kind of moral illiteracy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and and that's the paradox also what you talk about, but we, we will come back to that in a little while. So now turning a bit more into a theoretical matter, almost all of the topics that you touch upon in this book started out, at least that's how I read them, started out as, as being positive and then somehow turned negative, almost destructive even. So the idea of open borders, the idea of cosmopolitanism, the idea of the private sphere, and even the idea of democracy itself, at least in a certain way, they all started as positive and constructive ideas, but now are basically only considered as forces that need to be curtailed or that are no longer a building, but merely against something. And let me quickly give some examples. So you say that cosmopolitanism at first was for free movement, but now is almost solely backed by boycott. I to boycott ideas of sovereignty and democracy was understood as the means to achieve more kratos or more for the people but now as you claim correctly i think is almost solely back to when it consists of divorcing the same demos of its kratos of its power and the private sphere as well suddenly had to give way to this idea of transparency and everything that was done behind closed doors suddenly became suspicious and i could go on with many other examples that you give in your book so what is it that you th you think that turned these positive forces so sour in almost a very short period? Well, I I, I think these positive ideals for me are still very positive. Mm -hmm. It's just that uh, there's been a, a tremendous amount of distortion that has occurred, uh, particularly to our, our um, political vocabulary or philosophical vocabulary. If you look at the way that language is used and the meanings that are attached to it, even when we're looking at fundamental distinctions between left and right, you know, what, what the left means is no longer what it meant at one time. Mm. You know, for example, one of the most, uh, to me, the best thing, the most positive feature of the left was its future-oriented, experimentative approach, its belief in the Enlightenment. Mm. Whereas uh, 
large section of the left are think the uh, enlightenment is is the beginning of racism and is beginning of oppression uh, a, a large section of them are very hostile to the idea of progress they think that that's a very silly, stupid idea. They're very hostile to the idea of moral autonomy, which what Immanuel Kant promoted. So mm. a lot of the, uh, what I think as, as the important uh, elements in, in, in our philosophical, political vocabulary have altered their meanings uh, in, a, in a very kind of Im important kind of way. And you're absolutely right. You know, I often, you know, sort of when I give lectures and when I'm involved in seminars and I talk positively about the, importance of the private sphere uh, as a place where which, which is necessary for our mm. our moral imagination i get criticized for not understanding how horrible the private sphere is because that's where children are beaten up by their parents that's where women are violated that's where all the dark uh, elements of, of everyday life are conducted and i and i and i kind of look around myself and i say you know what has happened you know, how, how, how has this happened so rapidly that people have lost touch with the important intellectual insights uh, of what was going on at an earlier stage. Yeah, and, and, and you just said it all happened so rapidly. If I look at the example I just mentioned, and then you almost always give the same dates, well, the same two decades almost that, that are responsible for this starting to go sour. And it's ending at the 50s and beginning at the at the end of the 50s and then ending at the late 70s or beginning of the 80s. What was it you think about these years that made for this change, for this distortion, you call it, of the meaning of these so important social, political, and even cultural words. I think what happened was that this is the era of the Cold War, mm. where everything seemed very clear. You know, you had two sides, and people knew which side they were on. And because everything was so clear in this very divided world, mm. uh, what people lost sight of was that as, as this was happening, many of the uh, uh, sort of important ideals and, 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 and uh, principles that were associated with the pre-existing ideologies, both on the left and the right, both the conservative ideologies and, the, and then the liberal and the socialist communist ideologies, gradually lost a lot of their content. Hmm. And uh, you can see this, you know, sort of decade by decade, they become more and more uh, sort of shadows of themselves. The, uh, the intellectual uh, significance of, of, of these ideologies turn into an entirely mechanistic, you know, sort of uh, kind of uh, formulaic kind of an approach. And by the time you get to the 70s, you know, you have people like Althusser in France talking about the death of Marxism. Mm -hmm. you have people like Schulz and Nitzen, you know, talking about the, the how horrible Western culture had become, how cowardly Americans in particular were in the way they dealt with that kind of issues. You had you know, liberalism turning into this kind of narrow technical procedural, you know, sort of ideal. So it basically meant that under those circumstances, uh, political and public reality became detached mm -hmm. from the concepts that people were using. And I think in those, it was in that situation that behind everybody's back unexpectedly, you had the development of what, what today we call identity politics, because mm -hmm. um, it's not a very good term because it doesn't actually capture what I think is it, it really is about. I, I call it provisionally a kind of silent ideology, a kind of uh, 
invisible ideology that um, you know, in a sense kind of combines this technocratic, narrow-minded, uh, economistic political program with identity-related issues that two become uh, sort of wedded together and, and then they erupt very mm. powerfully in the 80s and, and uh, all the, all the uh, terms that we've been discussing uh, become corrupted uh, mm. in a complete wholehearted fashion at that point. Mm. Now, to change a little bit the, 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 the things we are talking about and returning to borders in a more direct way, you make two, I think, very particularly interesting statements about the desire for no borders. And I think it's uh, worthwhile to holding still with them a second. Now, the first is that uh, you say, considering that borders are a paradoxical thing, you can't simply or plainly be against borders. That can never be the end. So that's the first thing. And then the second is that you also make a very interesting connection between the idea of having no borders and the fact that that comports to uh, giving up the idea of accountability. And I think this is a fundamental truth. And in general, itself already, but especially today in this pandemic, we are faced with this harsh uh, truth and, and threat at the same time. So could you maybe elaborate these two provocative thoughts about no borders, please? Well, I, I think the, uh, the fact is, is that at the end of the day, we uh, do without some kind of a, a border. Uh, I mean, the paradox of the border is that a border is 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 essential, uh, both as a as a bridge to towards each other, you know, and also as a as a door that closes a particular territorial space to somebody else. So it it delineates the world for us, and it provides us with a, a both a physical and a and a and an intellectual map. Of, of of how we kind of move forward. And I think the important thing about borders is that they give the data as signposts, they kind of guide us by giving us meaning uh, to our everyday experience. And therefore, for me, borders and meaning are uh, inextricably linked and uh, to kind of try to get rid of that um, and to kind of erode that, you know, sort of is, is, is just very, very silly. I think the where, you know, where the issue of responsibility kind of comes in is that when you when you basically uh, lose sight of uh, of different uh, sort of symbolic boundaries you know in our everyday life, when for example uh, we we fail to make uh, distinctions that pertain to uh, how we live our lives, then we also become uh, we no longer take responsibility for our actions and for the welfare of other people. And I think this becomes clearest in the case of the erosion of borders between adults and children, mm -hmm. where you have both the infantilization of adults and the adultification of children, where it becomes very clear, you know, who's a child and who's an adult, where adults behave like children very often, particularly in the Anglo-American world, where they boast about the fact that they no longer uh, sort of tell children what to do, and what they really are essentially saying is that they are not no longer prepared to assume the kind of responsibility that all adults have historically had for the well-being of of kids, and that that I think is a very damaging uh, sort of development that has got very important consequences, not just for intergenerational relations, but just the way in which 
you know, sort of the socialization of young people uh, becomes, you know, diminished um, by this irresponsible behavior. Mm. Now, borders aren't the only important aspect in, in your account. You also talk, and, and I think this is important, about dichotomies and binary divisions. Uh, you state, and I think you state correctly, that they are both the tools by which we give meaning to the world that surrounds us. They emphasize, as you say, the necessity of being able to distinguish, to discern and to judge between differences and opposites. Now, two things I would like to discuss here are actually three. Now, first is that what is what is it that matters most here? The presence of the binary or that this binary or is this binary merely a means to be able to discern, to distinguish and to judge? That would be the first one. The second one is then that you say that the binary, for example, black and white, does not preclude the fact of gray. And I think this is fundamental and it, it, this is often forgotten today and especially by the people you already referred to, the, the identity identitarians or the people who stand for identity politics. But how should we interpret or how should we understand this third element? Is this merely in, in addition to the binary or is it present all along And if this is the case, how should the binary then be understood? And I hope I make myself clear here. And then the third one is that in your book, you mentioned postmodernism, deconstruction, and in particular Derrida as an opponent of binary thinking. Now, first of all, I think that the term of postmodernism by now has become so plastic that it doesn't indicate anything or anybody anymore. And I think it's time that we stop using it to avoid a lot of confusions. But secondly, I, I kind of disagree here with the description that you gave of Derrida as going against binary thinking. If anything, I think uh, this is the position of many interpreters of Derrida. But as I discussed in a, in a different podcast uh, some time ago, uh, it is time probably to defend Derrida, Derrida against these interpreters. Now, Derrida was perfectly aware of the importance of binary thinking, and he also never merely wanted to subvert these positions. And not all binary positions for uh, oppositions for Derrida were considered as merely power related. So basically, these are the three things. Uh, if you want, we can discuss them one at a time, or you can all, or you can take all three together. Well, all right. Well, just to begin with Derrida, I, I yeah. just by the way, I very rarely use the term postmodern. I'm, mm. I'm not a fan of the concept, for, mm. if, probably for the main reason that at the moment everything is wrongly blamed on postmodernism <laughs> uh, in a very kind of silly way. Mm. I, I do think that Derrida's theory on you know and approach is fairly sophisticated, and you know sort of his approach towards binary is one where he actually, as far as I can tell, argues that the important things. Is is, is 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 not so much to dismiss the binaries, but to subvert them, and an implication being is that in some shape or form, you may well recreate that. But I think that in 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 the act of uh, sort of seeing the necessity of subversion, uh, he makes the fatal mistake of 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 not understanding that the important thing that you do with a binary is you transcend it mm. and by transcending it this is this relates to what you were talking earlier on about the fact that in between black and white there is the gray that kind of third element uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, when you're creatively applying binary concepts you know you're not 
what, you, what you're doing is not saying that's the end of the matter. That's the final word on what you know what the concepts ought to be. Uh, you, you kind of try to go beyond the transcend the existing binaries mm. by be by constructing or forging or conceptualizing different ways of highlighting uh, important contrast in human experience. And I think that the subversive element is an is a tends to be a very complacent uh, sort of arrogant you know sort of way of basically saying look how much smarter I am than these old folks mm-hmm. and with the binaries rather than uh, attempting to uh, constructively you know sort of uh, kind of kind of go forward with them. The reason why I just you know probably probably don't realize but the, the reason why I, I, I became interested in binaries is because if you work in a British university or if, or if you go to Anglo-American universities, uh, everywhere you go, uh, it's kind of customary to begin a seminar paper by saying how stupid the people are who use binaries. Mm. And binary thinking is used as a synonym for idiocy. Mm. Only simple people have this kind of thing. And it, it was something that, you know, that at first just irritated me. But then with the passing of time, I realized that this actually you know, carried to its logical conclu- conclusion. It basically would mean the, uh, the, the, the decline of, of conceptual thinking because yeah. whether you like it or not, conceptual thinking is not kind of created from hot air. It's actually kind of built upon, you know, sort of binary categories. So, I mean, that, that's why it was important for me. And for me, it, it served as the academic in an intellectual reflection of the broader themes that are discussed in the book about physical borders and symbolic borders. Right. To end, three quick questions. What is it that is your uh, basic claim here? Is it the importance of borders and boundaries or the ability to decide to discern and to judge? Or is it a mixture of the two as they can't really be separated? Well, I, I, it's very clearly uh, the importance of upholding moral judgment. I'm, mm. I'm not that you know fussed about you know people rebelling or or acting against borders, as long as it's based upon the exercise of judgment. I, you know what I am concerned about is that when moral judgment is is pathologized, as is the case at the moment, mm. and the possibility of an intellectual debate and discussion and clarification is is totally undermined. Mm-hmm. Second, then, did you ever think that there is a connection between these basic requirements of deciding, judging, and discerning, and the ancient concept of crisis? And in that way, because you already referred to Kant and the Enlightenment, is 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 this this refusal or this incapacity to discern then not a an active uh, a step away from the active decision to step out of the minority that was the enlightenment as Kant already said um in in the back of my mind i i mean there are many many uh, historical uh, legacies that are i'm thinking about as as to as to what are the both the intellectual precursors of what is really happening and also to try to understand uh, as clearly as possible how this kind of zeitgeist that we're discussing in relation to borders and boundaries, you know, sort of uh, began to kind of kick in and, you know, sort of, uh, and, and why is it that it's very rarely 
seen as a as a, a subject of discussion that's worth looking at in its own terms. Mm. Then one final point. I think some people might look at this book as 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 if it contained some sort of nostalgia for the good old days. Is that present or is this not? I don't think so. I think that you know the, whatever nostalgia anybody may have uh, is a personal private matter. It's got no consequences for a very simple reason that you cannot go back mm. to the good old days and you cannot simply recreate the borders of the past or the symbolic boundaries of the past. I think what the book tries to do is that you have to real and the subtitle of the book is you have to relearn the art of drawing lines and that's something for the future where the kind of um, borders and boundaries we create are based upon the way we exercise our capacity to judge not uh, along the lines of the past because that's not going to work very well but in line with the possibilities of today. Okay, thanks so much for this, Frank. There are still so many aspects of your book that we weren't able to discuss, but for those who are interested in more, I greatly advise them to have a closer look at your book. I think you're a very keen observer, and I'm certain that very few people will come away from reading your book and not having discovered some interesting different points of view than the ones they already have. And isn't that what all good books should do? So anyway, it is called Why Borders Matter, Why Humanity Must Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries, and it is published by Routledge. Thank you again, Frank, and thank you all for having been with us for this episode of Bookaholics. My name is Christoph van Houten, and I hope you will tune in to us also in the future. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Frank. Bye.